Listen. Welcome to the Dotcast from Nine Dots. Nine Dots is the online learning community for wedding photographers. You can learn more about what we do and join the tribe at nine-dots.co. Hello, hello, hello. My name is Adam Johnson, and along with Andy Gaines and Rahul Kona, we founded Nine Dots way back in 2015. In this mini series of Dotcast episodes. I've been catching up with photographers from the Nine Dots community to ask them about their businesses and their journeys in wedding photography. This episode is a chat I had with a wedding photographer from Belgium, Simon Leclerc. I really didn't want there to be too much corona-related content in these podcasts, but it's impossible to avoid with Simon, as he's in quite a unique position because he's also a doctor, and has been working on the front line in Belgium throughout the pandemic, so he has some quite unique insight. I found it really interesting, and I'm sure you will too. Simon also shares some great tips for how he gets himself in the zone for a wedding to enable him to seek out the smaller moments that happen during a wedding day, which are his favourite things to capture. And he'll tell you why culling group photos is his least favourite part of the job. If you've got any comments or questions, let us know. We're on Instagram and Facebook and email at hello at nine-dots.co. Enjoy this episode of the Dotcast. Knowing me, Adam Johnson, knowing you, Simon the Clerk. Aha. Uh, oh, you don't know the answer to this. No, right, I don't. Well, so this is your homework. And, and I'm expecting nine out of ten people to not know the answer, but you're basically just supposed to reply by saying, aha. That's what I said. You, well, you kind of went, uh. I said, aha. Uh-huh. Oh, fine. So, oh, you passed. <laughs> you, 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 you passed then. You just made me look stupid. No, it's fine. Sorry, I, I clipped the audio do there. You, do, you, do you know uh, Alan Partridge's work? Yes, I do. Oh, good work. Because you are, although you are Belgian, mm-hmm. uh, definitely Belgian, you spent a lot of time growing up in Britain, right? Yes, I did. Uh, I moved to England when I was, um, I don't know, four or five. My my father was relocated to London. And um, so we first moved to Essex. Um, and then my parents divorced quite quickly after arriving in England. And then we moved around like Essex, Suffolk, Hertfordshire. And then my dad moved to London. Um, when I was about 12, 13 years old, I moved back to Belgium. My mother had remarried already um, with, an, with a Welsh guy, um, my stepfather, Alan. And uh, so we've always been talking English at home. And I think it took like six years after arriving back uh, in Belgium before we started watching Belgian TV. So we were watching like the BBC News and until I was like 18. So I have a massive affinity with England, especially with my dad still living in England, in London, uh, I used to go back a lot as a teenager. So yeah, that's, that's, I, I kind of have an accent, although it really is deteriorating. It's, it's turned into some weird eaten mess of an accent. <laughs> I like it. That's a good analogy. No, I think you, yeah. I mean, I think you, you speak perfect English, but, but you are uh, Dutch Belgian, right? No, no, no. Oh yeah. Flemish speaking Belgian. Flemish yeah. speaking Belgian. Yeah. And then there's French speaking Belgians. Yeah, but we speak French at home. Well, you spoke French with the family. So technically in England, I well, my mother tongue is English, to be honest, because that's the first that I learned to read and write. We spoke a lot of French with my grandparents and my cousins. And then I went into school in Dutch when I was a teenager. So I'm trilingual. Um, and it's cool. It's nice. It's, it's nice being able to talk uh, different languages. Um, but I still love English the most. Flemish is a fucking ugly language. 
French is good. It's good to swear in, but I mean, English is class. Yeah. <laughs> I like, I like the facts about the, cause you do, you do speak English as, as an English person with a Belgian accent. That's what it sounds like rather than the other way around. Oh, thanks. Yeah. That's a lovely compliment. So I want to ask you some questions about Belgium. Okay. Go. So obviously over here we would have Belgian chocolate. Yeah. Is that just called chocolate in Belgium? <laughs> yes, it is. Really? It is. So and do you have English chocolate. chocolate that you look down upon? Well, no, because English chocolate is pretty awesome. Exactly. It's one of the only things we're good at. It's correct answer. Yeah, the Cadbury's is absolutely amazing. It is. It definitely is. But you wouldn't, you wouldn't refer to Belgian chocolate as Belgian chocolate? Well, no, unless I'm visiting England and I've got Belgian chocolates with me. It's just to emphasize that I brought a present. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. It's good knowledge. Also, we have a thing over here called Belgian buns. Oh, good. Which What's is like that? a bread. It's like a sweet bread roll with icing on top of it and a cherry. Does that have anything to do with Belgium? I have no idea. No, it doesn't really. I didn't expect it did. It seemed to say a strange thing to be called a Belgian bun. I wonder why it's called a Belgian bun. Is there like a thing in Belgium where you cover yourselves in icing and put a cherry on yourself? Or (laughs) I don't know. Not that I am aware of. (laughs) Well, we should we should both research that afterwards. We will. We will. Yeah. Uh, Brussels sprouts. Anything to do with Belgium? Um. Yeah, I think it's a lot of people in Belgium eat sprouts. So, oh really? Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a delicatess. Ah, yeah, uh, like is. a like a daily basis. Well, no, not on a daily basis because you probably fart a hole in the ozone layer. But um, it's it's yeah, people eat it a lot. Like chicory is a, is a specialty here as well. A lot of people eat chicory. Um, I don't know if that's a thing in England, but like in the oven with cheese and ham, it's like a farmer's equivalent to macaroni cheese and ham but we just chuck chicory in there without the macaroni yeah Um, healthier healthier as well uh well with the cheese and ham like for 45 minutes in the oven it's uh yeah 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 good point point. waiting to happen yeah well that's a great that's a great insight into belgian history there (laughs) um but thanks for clearing any of that clearing all of that up so obviously you as well as you're a wedding photographer that's why you're here i am yes um and but as well as shooting weddings in belgium you shoot kind of all over the place so what is unique about a belgian a wedding in belgium compared to maybe other cultures they're really long we i think my my average day average full day coverage is between 12 to 15 hours um which is a long time um so they do like the prep, then then the first look, and then we go to the registrar's office, and then from the registrar's office, they try and fit a photo shoot in there or some family pictures. Then they go to the church. This is very traditional then. Huh? The church, and then there's a reception, and then there's a second reception because the first reception is for the parents' friends and the friends that you don't really want to invite, but you kind of have to. And the second reception is for the people that are coming for the dinner party, uh, then there's dinner, then there's way too many speeches, and then it's party. Party usually kicks off at 11, 11.30 sometimes, if you're unlucky, one. Um, so yeah, weddings are really long in Belgium. Oh, wow. That is quite different, actually. I, did, I, didn't, I, I asked the question without knowing the answer. Like Sometimes I know on, the, on here I kind of ask a question knowing what answer I'm going to get, but I <laughs> genuinely didn't know what you were going to say. But So every wedding has a first look. That's like a thing. Well, they kind of try and do it because the bride gets ready and then as they start quite early, it's usually starting at 8, 8.30. Um, the the groom kind of turns up at some point and they might as well do a proper first look then. The worst ones are in the doorway, like front door that is ringing at the door 
and then they open and you have to try and squeeze your ass somewhere in between it to try and take a picture. But as a photographer, you you kind of try to make something good of it. Um, but they they rarely have the first look at the altar, which you do have more in England, I, I presume. I would say nine out of ten weddings would have that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, that's yeah. I had I had a wedding in France a couple of weeks ago, and they had that, and that was pretty cool. Actually, it was fun having that because you can really take. I mean, there's so much to shoot. It's like, oh my god, what do I have to do? Because <laughs> you want her reaction, his reaction, then the crowd, and then you've got fifty mobile phones in your frame um yeah it's it's fun it's it's a ch it's challenging so i'd prefer that yeah but so that's but that's a first look in the sense that it's not like the american style first look where it's massively contrived in front of a tree at sunrise and you know he pretends mm, to turn no, around it's not it's not that dramatic yeah no. it's, it's it's pretty quite, basic it's real you, it's, it's a like nice a real moment. first look where he would come and actually come and see her yeah, yeah, they hadn't they haven't seen each other before that. Yeah. Like at the altar in in the UK. Mo the majority of your work is documentary. Yeah. Um how do you do a first look in a documentary way? You sometimes they ask you how they how you want them to do it. Um or, or how they have to do it. <laughs> um and then I just document it. I think you kind of have you want his reaction, her reaction, you want the kiss and then the reaction of the family. So it's kind of like a set I, it's not it's not like a recipe but yeah, it's yeah. the kind of things that you try and keep an eye on and depending on the situation you kind of wing it yeah um and sometimes you can be really surprised what what happens um you can get like a really good composition i've got one of my pictures where you had them standing on the stairs one upstairs and one downstairs and you could get like one of them just in between the banisters and it was like whoa look what i pull out of my ass that looks good <laughs> And then I went downstairs and it was shit light and it was crap and I couldn't get the the picture of the family because they were standing in backlight and it was like, well, at least I got a nice looking thing. Yeah. I think that's <laughs> so you that, kind of wing it. Yeah. That, that's what in photography in a nutshell, isn't it? That you're just <laughs> constantly surprised that you managed to create something good out of a stressful. It's like, whoa, look at this. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So no, but I, keep pressing the shutter button and at the end of the day, you'll have something. Yeah. I would not have survived in the film days. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. I know, definitely not. I mean, it's just such a privilege to be, to be shooting in digital times when, when and with a, with an LCD when you can see what you're doing. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, no. And crazy. EVF, you don't even need to look anymore. It's just like, oh yeah, well, LCD while you're shooting, but oh, right, you kind of know where you're yeah, getting. Exactly. Yeah. No, but I, I, like a first look in the in the British American sense would be a portrait shoot. That's what it would be, really. Whereas yours oh, is obviously okay. like a different, same name, yeah, di same name, totally different thing because it is more of a more, like more real, like a first look over here or in the states where it's which which and it's, the states heavily influences the way weddings are in the UK. But there's, but then the first look for us would be like find a tree and or a quiet place and then it's all very contrived like the the bride will walk up and tap the groom on the shoulder and he'll turn around and often it's just the two of them that become oh like they kind of do that but they do that in their front yard they yeah. do that in their front garden i prefer and that it's up to you to make it look amazing uh it's it's very rare that it's pinterest worthy but you never know we're not here to you, make we're not here to make pinterest worthy that's the bonus though isn't it <laughs> well if you do it's great exactly if you can break the internet with a shot i mean yeah if something goes viral oh that's the best thing for your ego ever <laughs> yeah yeah well it's never happened to me not uh, me neither yeah uh, but and then so two receptions well no that's I, i'm 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 doing like the very cliche uh belgian wedding very traditional i kind of i, I kind of book a little bit less traditional couples um more and more um but they have like one reception for an hour an hour and a half and then the second one with all the guests that are coming for the dinner and the party 
So it can be it can be a, a long day. It, it really is long. I think last year I did thirty three weddings, um, and the average I looked at the average it was thirteen hours, which is a lot. Yeah, it is a lot. And and obviously with the reception, this, the the their party. So you you almost like I we here we would call the reception the, the after dinner party probably. What do you mean the, the, the dancing? Yeah, but you that's like the third part. That's the third reception in your oh, yeah. example. Yeah. So there's well, it's like not really a reception because so the reception dancing. would be like our post ceremony drinks, I guess. Uh, yeah, well that's what it that's then, what it is. And then usually well. those same people would have dinner, but you're saying like a whole another load of people arrive for dinner. Yeah, they do in the most traditional sense they do, yeah. And then and then what the party goes on till early hours of the morning. Yeah, usually, usually four to six, and you stay until until that time. Uh, it depends. <laughs> um, I usually I usually tell my couples you book me until an hour after the openings dance, after the first dance, because um, by that I know if it gets postponed or it gets delayed, at least I'm getting paid until an hour afterwards, and they're all fine with it. It's in the contract that if there is. If it's longer, and I ask them explicitly, if it's longer than they would have thought because they have too many courses, um, then I stay. Uh, I usually stay an hour after the first dance, although what usually happens here is after that hour, that's when it starts getting interesting and people are getting really drunk. Um, and I, I kind of like that window between everybody's drunk and they really don't care about you taking pictures and then it topples over into everybody's getting touchy and grabbing you and wants a selfie with you so you kind of have to get the best shots between those two bits and it, there's always gold on the dance floor well usually yeah because they've been sitting at a table all evening they've had way too much wine they've already had a drinks reception before it and then the party kicks off so all the guys go into the beers um and it's great i just love the mayhem of the dance floor it's it's just it's amazing <laughs> that's good though i mean it's good that the party starts so late because people will already be well on the way hammered <laughs> whereas here, sometimes here the party might might get started at like 7 p.m 8 p.m and nobody's you know people have maybe had a bit of wine with dinner but nobody's ready to be uninhibited on a dance floor one of my favorite weddings from last year they went they they wanted to have the party kicked off properly so what they did is this like it was 150 people all doing a collective karaoke with a live band oh it was absolute bedlam and then the bride she went around with tequila before the dance party started uh that was the best I bet. ever good party good party stay till three then right because it was worth it it was worth it yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, is it fair to say that's your favorite bit to capture the party Oh, it really depends. Uh, I think my fa I, I do generally enjoy it because uh, it's fun and I like dancing around. I just get stuck in and dance around with the people. But at the same time, I just like when things start kicking off at a, at a wedding day, um, when there's loads of moments, there's a bit of carnage, a bit of mayhem, and it can be like low key, like emotions, like during the ceremony. I just love it when there is meaningful interaction that you can document and that you can show. And sometimes it's really hard to find, but it's always there. At a wedding, there is always these little gems and little treasures. And I kind of like hunting those and finding those. But when you have like this massive dance party or this big game or a flash mob, well, yeah, that makes your life a lot easier as a photographer. And I, I tend to really enjoy those bits. But then trying to find those little moments uh, during a drinks reception, yeah, that's amazing. That's good fun. Uh, but it's not easy. And it takes a certain concentration, which I don't always have. But you know, you kind of wing it. But what's the key? What's the key to that then? What What would you say is the is the key to finding those much quieter moments within a wedding day? 
I think last year, as of August, I went full time. So I did this. I did this full time for the full six months until fucking COVID came yeah. along. I really had a a way of preparing myself mentally for a for a wedding, and that sounds really weird, but I I would really sit down the the evening before. I would get some of my favorite photo books out uh, that are not wedding related, obviously. Um, and go for a long walk with the dog. And I have a playlist, which I really put on and listen to um, before I go. Uh, and in the morning, I'm listening to that same playlist to just try to empty my head as much as possible to really focus and not have all this noise around my head um, to to connect with the day. And that sounds that sounds really, well, that sounds weird, but it is something that I really dial down and really double down on doing properly is emptying your head and connecting with the day as it unfolds around you and it and it has changed the way i i shoot fundamentally um so that's what i love doing is just like clearing my head getting that all getting all the noise of daily life which is very busy out of my head and just engage and shoot the crap out of a day and it's great there's some gold in there, so that's quite a ritual, and it's almost meditative, but but not you're not meditating it, but it's it's that kind of same yeah. approach. Yeah, but and that you would do that almost like almost as a ritual before every single wedding. Yeah, I did that in the summer, um, as of July, I think I did that for several weddings because I kind of thought there's so much potential in in shooting a wedding. Every wedding there is there is there is gold to be shot, but it's down to you as a photographer to really engage with it and you cannot engage 100% with a wedding if you're not concentrated but concentrated in a manner that you're just absorbed in what's going on and you kind of just feel how things will go along and you it's a lot easier to anticipate the potential of a moment that's unfolding in front of you if you're just there mm. um and I'm not I'm not a guy that meditates and sits on a cushion I have the the attention span of a goldfish or a brown labrador or whatever you want to call it um but it is fundamental. It does shoot, it does change the way that I that I shoot because you're calm and composed and you're open to what's going on around you. It's that's, it's so interesting. So let's dissect it a little bit. So you mentioned right. the first thing was do you get your fo your favorite photo books out? Yeah, and then you you kind of flippantly said not weddings, obviously. So why is well, it why is it important that those are not wedding related stuff? Because I think the most important and interesting images you can take is by studying other people's work that are not wedding related because if you study too much work of other wedding photographers you're going to end up emulating it but i love looking at um just to name a few i'm looking at them right now in my cupboard i love matt stewart's book um all that life can afford uh it's a street photography book from in the streets of london it's amazing and it's color work which is great as well it's so funny that it has this black humor in it uh, that, well, dark humor that really, that really resonates with me. And it's very odd, some of the shots, and I love it so much. I like flicking through Harry, Harry Gruert to pronounce it properly, or Harry Gruert to say it in English. Um, I love his color work. I love the way he um, finds repetition in color and composition. Sam Abel, definite night before a wedding composition all of my favorite shots uh, compositionally are kind of based on what i've learned from looking at his work uh 
So I think if you boil it down, the theory that you can take away from those things, like the 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 not the theory, but the the concepts that you pick with it, is massive. Um, compositional Sam Abel, Harry Greyart, the colors and how they kind of embody certain compositions, and then Matt Stewart's humor. Uh, those are like my go-to. I've got a load more, like the Magnum, the Magnum contact sheets. Um, I, I I used to look at a lot of a lot of my favorite wedding photographers the evening before. I used to like, oh, let's see what Gabe McClintock's doing. Oh, what did Fer do, or what did um, Victor do, or uh, oh, let's have a look what the last York Place Instagram post was. And as much as I love all of those photographers and have learned a lot by looking at them, it does create a lot of noise which is which potentially creates the urge to emulate it because it's easier to em emulate something but planting a little seed of of inspiration or a certain concept from other photography you kind of like mix it with yourself and what's going on and you can make meaningful images i'm not saying i figured it all out but it's images that i'm like hey cool this is fun i enjoy that well to dissect it further for you and then music is something that really triggers uh, a lot of focus and calms me down, which is something that I'm I'm not very good at. So that music really hones me down on certain emotions and certain connections. Um, and that really helps in shooting my weddings. It's so interesting to find these things out, I think, because everybody, I think everybody prepares for weddings differently because it's so much based on your own personality type. And, uh, yeah. but, but I do think it's an, it's amazing advice to not, to not, you know, because you, you, I think everybody gets a little bit panicky, a bit like, oh, I don't know what I'm going to create tomorrow. Yeah. So how do, how can I fill my head with inspiration when, I mean, I've, my big thing is over the years has been to, a, a realization that inspiration will only come when I'm at that wedding with those people in that place. Oh, yeah. Sure, definitely. Um, but I definitely went through a phase of, I would look at Jeff Newsom's work the night before or whoever, and but I would scroll through and almost feel completely inferior by the end of it. Oh yeah, definitely. That's the problem. It does create, it does create, it, it stresses you out. I'm not saying don't look at other wedding photographers. There's a lot to be learned from a lot of the, a lot of people, but don't do it the evening before a wedding because you're only going to trip yourself up trying to fall asleep because you've just seen the last 10 posts that Fer did or Victor just like, they're all posting carousels now. That's even more depressing. You're swiping through it like shit. Crap. Oh my God. <laughs> so yeah, don't do that. <laughs> But um, I think it is it is it is important to do that and to absorb the the theory and the basis and the concepts that you can build with. It's like Legos. You you need the Lego blocks to build a tower, but just try making your own tower. And you need other inputs to be able to build your own tower. True. And whether it stands or falls, well, yeah, that well, yeah, <laughs> that you'll see on the way. That's the learning curve. But uh, the learning curve of going from absorbing other wedding photographers work to other sorts of photography or even art i can imagine that for some people other things really work and music is it's just great it just calm your head down and put put your head in another space and i think this is probably one of the main reasons why i tend to avoid double headers is because i cannot make my best work doing two three weddings in a row you it will be fine the clients probably don't notice but for me to have an empty head and a clear head and make the best stuff that I can um, is is definitely is definitely in a one wedding at a time. Yeah, is that something that so you you have that principle in your business where you where you won't do back to back weddings? 
Uh, I tr- I really try to avoid it. If I do it, I try to have at least the weekend off before or after it, um, and never more than five or six weekends in a row, just single weddings, because as the days are, I think in England you have a lot of people doing double headers because you only have like eight to ten hours coverage sometimes, and if it's not too far, you can kind of wing that. But I mean, you gotta you got to figure out you got to everybody has to decide this for themselves everybody's business is 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 theirs and everybody has their own bills to pay so do not get me wrong on this but i've figured if i have to do an average of 13 hours for a wedding then um i'm 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 making meaningful and satisfactory work for myself and the clients if i have a clear head i did i did a, i did a triple header last year which was not the best idea but going into doing this full time um, yeah, the third one, the third one was was fine. It was good enough, but I mean, yeah, the first two won a story award, and this is reportage, but the last one didn't. So I learned my lessons because <laughs> that's what that it's all about. So obviously. fucking aggregate. That's what it's all about. Yeah, yeah. But I think this no, is I'm joking. Just, joking I've, I've got about seventeen other questions waiting in my head now after saying Go all on. that. But the first one is such an important point to make, and I've, this has been mentioned on other podcasts, really, in, in different ways that you need to find what it is that makes you tick in your own business and the way that you work and what how how to fit your business around you know it's a lifestyle business at the really being a wedding photographer mm-hmm. so if if there are elements of it that you don't like for instance or that you you feel don't fit with the way that you like to make pictures or make make you work you need to re-engineer your business to to work in a different way so that it fits with the way that makes you happy and uh and if for instance like in your case and the same with me actually um I never, I never liked the process of going from one wedding to the next wedding to the next wedding. Because even over here, although my own, yeah, I guess the, I bet the average number of hours per wedding is probably for most photographers would be like eight, eight, nine, ten hours. Especially the way that photographers tend to work these days, you might have one at one end of the country the one day and another end of the country the next day, and you've got to travel between the two, and you've got to then you've got to charge your batteries between the two and check your memory cards between the two. Memory cards, yeah. Yeah, um, so I'm going to rewind back a tiny bit to when you were talking about the books. Obviously, the, all the, all the photo books you were talking about and the photographers you were talking about were, were talking about documentary photographers. Mm-hmm. Um, and has that always been uh, two questions really? One is that has that always been the kind of photography that you ad- you adore, and that's why your wedding photography is primarily documentary. And two, mm-hmm. you mentioned uh, a lot of a couple of times the fact that you you love color documentary work which is quite unique in a documentary wedding photographer because there's a lot of black and white documentary wedding photography in the world so to mm-hmm. to to do it in a way and to love color at the same time is a little bit different so yeah i don't know what more questions are but i think you get no, 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 definitely. From. i understand what you're trying to say um well i think if you're a wedding photographer you're predominantly documentary anyway because 90 percent of the day is documentary whether you like it or not uh, unless you're posing in the middle of the ceremony, which I don't think many people are doing. So, I mean, everybody is a doc- documentary wedding photographer, but I love doing portraits. I, I like getting creative and trying to find a way to express the personality of um, of my couples in portraits. Um, I really double down on group shots, family portraits. I do that and I do that with pride and I make everybody on that shot well, I try to if they open their eyes and smile, but I try to make it good because as a wedding photographer, if you've got good group shots, 
you can fuck up the rest. You'll still get away with it. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Again, that's a big that's a big golden nugget of wisdom right there. And I, I remember looking back at my wedding pictures from last year. Um, some of my favorite ones were the in-between moments between the group shots. So that is documentary, but it was kind of staged. And that's that's gold. That's gold. There's there's because you know you've got your whole family standing there, but you're being spontaneous. So I'm usually the the cull of my group shots are an absolute nightmare because I shoot the crap out of them because you want everybody to have their eyes open and look kind of okay, and then you shoot the crap of the in between moments because sometimes there's a golden nugget in there that is just amazing, uh, and you know everybody can do what they want and call themselves what they want, but I'm a wedding photographer. Am I a documentary wedding photographer? Yeah, for some part. I like taking portraits. There's a lot to be learned in portraits um, and trying to find your own voice there. That was kind of the plan for 2020 to find something meaningful in in my portrait work because it was still kind of an emulation of, of, of what everyone else was doing. So it's like, all right, they're standing in front of each other. Okay, let's do a silhouette. Let's do a reflection and then let's shoot through shit and then we're done. Yeah, nailed it. Not, well, not really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think it's, I'm a wedding photographer and I love the documentary stuff because most of the day is documentary anyway, and there's a lot to be learned in there. Yeah. And what about the color side of it? Because obviously that, that's the other thing that's that's probably unique about your docu- document. And I I, ha- I feel a lot the same really about m- most of my documentary work within my wedding photography is color. Mm-hmm. And you're, it's mm-hmm. the same with you, really. There's a, a lot of, I, I look at the world in color. Yeah. I, I cannot comprehend how some people look at the world and see it in black and white. I'm not colorblind. Um, but there's a lot. It's it's harder. It's 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 easy sometimes to put a picture in black and white because cleaning up a color shot is really difficult. But for some reason, this the connection that I have with my color shots just bring me back more to 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 what it felt like because it's in color. By putting a shot in black and white for me. It's either that the moment is getting distracted by the color that's going on around it, or it's just too messy because there's too much color going on and it just doesn't work. You have stepmom's got a bright orange dress on uh, and that kind of stuff. But I must admit this season, well, the little weddings that I've had, well, I had a couple or I had had quite a few. I I can't complain. I'm not going to complain. Um, I have been putting a lot more into black and white because the impact, even if it's a good color shot, the impact sometimes. It's a lot more in black and white. But basically, you're saying there's no there's no rule to say that if you're doc, if you're a primarily documentary approach, you have to be black and white. <laughs> no, but no, not necessarily. Well, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. I, yeah, I mean, yeah, some yeah. Of, some some amazing photographers shoot primarily in in black and white. I yeah. think uh, in Belgium, you have Joshua Dont who who spoke at Nine Dots last year. She is a black and white photographer, although her color work is great. Mm. Uh, Susanna Barbera, yeah, she's she's got some amazing black and white work, and I just I I I, I love it. But yeah, I'm still trying to find a balance. I say to my clients, if a picture is in black and white, you can be sure it looks shit in color. I don't say like that, but <laughs> <laughs> just to make sure you don't get the question afterwards of can we have yeah. that in color? <laughs> I didn't get that question once last year, which was pretty cool. Yeah, that's good. That is good. I mean, it's the same with me. I've always delivered a mixture of the two and kind of said yeah. the same thing as you, that if the, if, it, if a shot is in black and white, assume that it needs to be. Um, yeah. But I, I like that as well. I like the fact that you're very much like, you don't feel the need to pigeonhole yourself as a documentary wedding photographer. No, definitely not. There's, there seems to be this fetish about labeling oneself in the industry. And 
you know, clients don't understand it anyway, so just don't bother. Just just say, look, these are my, uh, if my website is very basic. Um, it's a Squarespace website with zero SEO. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, and they open it, and it's a video. Um, then there's the portfolio, and then there's like my starting prices, and then about me. And I'm like, if 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 I need to explain what's going on in these pictures then just try and find someone else because the pictures do the talking if you like it hey get in touch this is who i am and i write a piece about who i am or what i find important definitely but the pictures the pictures on a website speak for themselves and anyone who who goes onto a website these days it's all instagram but it's true i mean a website is very important do not get me wrong um and it was one of my to-do lists to to do the seo one day maybe one day uh, we'll talk about this in a minute but we'll talk about why you maybe haven't had as much time as other people during 2020 (laughs) but uh, just just quickly on the whole website thing i mean it's quite a simple website yours but i think one of the one key element that can't be overlooked of a website again this is a bit of a tangent to what we were just talking about is that is that on on your about me page you've just got a really big picture of yourself looking at the camera and smiling and i think that is Mm -hmm. so often overlooked by photographers who try and have an arty about me image which is you know shot through a couple of prisms or they're really far away or they're looking me- oh, yeah, melancholically down at their camera or something. You just, I yeah, think de- you can't overstate the importance of having a friendly face on your About Me page. It's, yeah. it's a really shit picture, but it's a smiley <laughs> face and I like it. My, my husband took it. We were sitting at the, at the table and I was making my website. It's quite an old one. I said to him, yeah, can you just take a picture of me? I need one for my About Me page. And also on my on my Instagram profile, I've got this quirky image of me and my dog peering over the table. And I'm like, you know, I mean, I, I think people like to put a face on. on a li- they like to link a face to, 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 a, to, to a business. It's nice to have it personal and i don't do the personal branding like some people do in in the industry or in any industry um but i mean i'm a smiley guy i'm an open um extrovert um happy most of the time guy smiley and that's who i am that's it so yeah if they like that then book me and it's it's, yeah. it's very true and it's the one thing i always look for if if anybody ever asked me to kind of critique the website before i go and look at the pictures or the <laughs> the rest of it i go and see what they what picture they've got on their about me page because i think it's just that a lot of people will go to that page and get a feel for the person before sometimes before they go and see whether they like the pictures and stuff so no it's yeah. very important and i'm not saying everybody has to have a smiley happy face on there just be yourself just be yourself yeah absolutely yeah. and the, so talking about being yourself and the, and we just i just mentioned it a minute ago so um and you've mentioned going full-time a couple of times and you, yeah. you kind of had to go backwards this year because obviously i don't want to make these podcasts too much about coronavirus and the pandemic no, but you had to go backwards either. because your previous job you're a doctor you are a doctor yeah, i am so that's why i mean you haven't had you definitely haven't had time off this year that's fair to say no so i i i studied medicine i'm a gp uh, fully qualified since about seven years, um, and I love I love being a GP, but with weddings and photography. No, I've always loved photography. Mm-hmm. Uh, even when I was studying, photography was like an escape. It was something that got me out, that got me traveling, and um, it, it really it really was a lovely counterbalance to my studies because studying medicine. Yeah, it wasn't easy. It's it's quite tough. It's a lot of a lot of studying. So it was it kept me sane. And then from one thing went led another. I did a lot of photojournalism for the the student newspaper at the university, and that opened 
several possibilities and before you know it you're doing a wedding um it doesn't take that long usually it took it i held it off for quite a while but then all of a sudden somebody really cool asked me to do it and i was like yeah sure i'll do that i don't know what i'm doing but i'll do it so with one camera and a 24 to 70 uh, and a flash that i didn't know how to turn on i did the first wedding um but it all snowballed like massively very quickly i think this was going to be my uh third professional season so paying v paying taxes i think i did a couple of weddings before that so i think 2017 end of 2017 beginning of 2017 that's when i started doing weddings and i i it got to a point in 2018 that i was like oh, i actually really like this and i i did some mentoring with eve scapers or eve sheepers as you say in england um and he really kicked my ass into gear it was very honest it felt harsh but it wasn't honest critique uh and you suddenly start seeing hey light it's a thing uh, and composition is too and these kind of things and it and it just i was like okay i want more and i did the the mind the moment workshop which is the big belgian workshop and that was in the in january of 2019 in parallel i was a full-time gp so doing 50 60 70 hour weeks and then some weekend warrior weddings, um, which wasn't, which is not easy because I would get home at three in the morning, I would cull it and culling it at three in the morning, five, it was finished. And then doing the preview on Saturday and Sunday and then editing at, over my lunch break the coming week. It was funny because as a, as a full-time GP, I was delivering my weddings quicker than when I wasn't. Um, but it, the thing is I, I started a, a practice private practice because in belgium you have to know we don't have the the gp nursery well like the what is it the um, what's the office called surgery that's the surgeries so we don't have that we're not employed by the government we are self-employed uh so we have to pick up our own phones we have to do our own everything so it's pretty it's pretty tough it's pretty tough um because you kind of have to build your own little business you're always in demand. So, I mean, there's not much you have to do. Pa patients come anyway. Um, even to the bad ones, they come anyway. But I mean, if you're a good one, you're, you're very popular very quickly. So I started a, a practice with a very good friend of mine, something that I thought I would never do. And I, uh, because I'm, I'm, I'm someone that functions well in a team, not on my own, especially as a GP, as it's quite tough because you're the well sorry to put it this way you're the poor man psychologist so you're dealing with a lot of psycho uh, psychological problems with people which is fine and i love doing that but that does not make it easier so i started a practice with with a good friend of mine and we uh we got it going but he got a job at quick step cycling which is the big cycling team i don't know if anybody knows anything about cycling so he's the doctor for the cycling team of quick step um and i mean he got into that and it just like blew up very quickly. He just got into this into this world of cycling doctor, which is amazing. He's traveling the world and he's really good at it. He's amazing. But the problem was I was I got I was being a GP 12, 13 hours a day, five days a week on my own. And that was the only space that I never wanted to find myself in because it was very lonely. It was a 45 minute drive from my house. Um, and it was just I, I got myself into a bad space by 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 not acknowledging to myself that this was not what i'm looking for and it did get me down into a into a vicious negative cycle of of just not being happy but i mean all all good and well i had the weddings and because i was having a hard time trying to trying to find figure it out professionally as a doctor those last two years the weddings were like 
a release for me and I just love being really creative and it was just amazing. Uh, and I think the major, one of the reasons why I grew so quickly as a photographer is, is because one, because of the, the network that I have of photographers here and two, because I was genuinely not happy in what I was doing as a doctor. Um, and that was, that was tough. Um, because I, I genuinely think for me personally, it might be different for someone else, but for me to reach my maximum and full potential as a photographer, I needed to do it full time and concentrate on it 100%. I quit. I stopped in August of last year and I finished the wedding season. It was a pretty hefty wedding season, especially as I was quitting, uh, from coming from a full-time doctor already done like 15 weddings, still had 15 to go. So I had a massive backlog. So only in January of 2020, everything was done and was given, was delivered. And I was finally relaxing because it was pretty, it was pretty, in, it was pretty intense. Um, and then I said to myself, you know what, February and March, I will sub as a GP um, just to be sure that financially it's all fine for 2020. No risks taken. I don't like touching my savings that I've built up. I don't like doing that. So February was the reaffirmation of why I went full time because I didn't enjoy it because it was a very busy practice. But I love it. I love it. But then in March, all bedlam broke loose with COVID and then in April, I got sick myself, so I was home for three weeks. I locked my, I had to lock myself up in my office, as my as my husband is a, a patient that's at risk, and so I lived for fourteen days on a twenty twenty square meter office. I just went absolutely nuts, and I was sick uh, at a certain point. I nearly went to the hospital because I thought, okay, this is not getting better. This is getting worse, and then it got better, and then it got worse again. And I was like, oh shit, all right, I'm gonna die. So it was proper drama queen in my head as well. Um, but then, yeah, April, I was like, I'm kind the wedding season, it's not going to be much. Uh, and a friend of mine, she had a space, she needed someone to sub. It was only like part time. Uh, so I did that. And then it was Corona all, all the way. Uh, and it's been Corona since, since March. Um, and you're on the front line as a GP, you are proper front line. You get all the people on the phone that are anxious and rightly so sometimes your front line, you're, you're coming into homes for the elderly where it's absolute apocalypse now stuff. But now it's calmed down. We've had a second, we're in a second wave here, but it kind of seems to be under control. Um, I'm, I've got two more months to go as a doctor and then I'm, uh, I'm, I'm stopping and praying um, that it will all get better. So that's my story. I've really bantered on. That's good. And I, I was letting you talk because it's, I think it's a really interesting story and it's, it's crazy really because... I mean, it's so funny to say we've all been affected by COVID and Corona in 2020, but we at least we've been able to, for the whole time, if we wanted to, just lock ourselves in our houses and and let the outside world deal with it. But you've you've not been able to do that because, well, I mean, you, you didn't have to go back and be a GP, but I suppose the personality and the kind of guy that you are and yeah. and everything else, you just felt compelled to and and you kind of had to. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. had to. It's it 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 felt it would have felt really dishonest to the rest of the the doctor's world to to just like sit it out uh at the same time i was like i mean i don't know what's going to happen i really didn't think i would be shooting any more weddings i did actually shoot quite a few um that were adapted but i i was like hey I, i've built some savings up i'm not touching that and while i can i might as well try to earn some money and get through but that's not always the best way to go about things because it has been grueling at times. 
you know, you're, you have to watch the news every day. You have to know what people are going to phone you about. So for me, it has been Corona 24-7 for the past five months. And it's, it's, it, it really gets you. Because I think the main thing that has been tough, even on me as a professional in it, is there is no perspective at this moment. If there's one thing that I've learned uh, in the last few months is to shut my mouth because you just don't know. Even me, who is a qualified professional and actually, by, by definition, an expert, I have no fucking idea where this is going. So I've just learned to shut up and just ride it out and hope, well, not ride it out, do my best, do my yeah, bit exactly. and hope that yeah. the people above us do their bit. Um, I mean, we've talked about uh, we've talked on and off the whole time, really, haven't we, about it? And yeah, we have. You, you've you've definitely you've definitely ridden the wave of positivity to negativity and back again. Oh my god! Over I'm and over sorry. again. No, it's it's good. <laughs> but um, but I think we can both agree that the worst the worst place you can go and vent your opinions is a fa- is Facebook. We can oh, we can god. agree on that without any. Um, but and we'll connect this back to wedding photography in a minute. But just on the whole 2020 thing, in because one of the big feelings for most of us this year has been has been one of helplessness so have yeah. you have you in any way taken any uh any kind of obviously pride i guess is one word for it but in the fact that you are not being helpless you you are really helping directly oh i can i can imagine i i don't feel like that but i i can imagine the contrary that if i would be sitting at home not powerless not actually being able to fundamentally do something i would feel very i would feel very useless at a certain point i don't really have the feeling that Oh wow, I changed the world today. Oh wow, I did a massive thing. I do have the feeling I've connected with someone, I've helped someone, and I've made their world a little bit of a better place. And that is fulfilling. But especially in this corona time, and coming back to what you were saying, is Facebook and predominantly Facebook, it's just a it's it's turned into this this war of keyboard warriors. Um I think it's always been that way though, hasn't it? But just at yes, a time when we're all, we're all, we're all, we've all got the same things on our mind constantly. Yeah, we're all in the same. So the thing is before we could all, if someone would have a rant about one thing or the other, you'd always have a couple of people that can go on about it because they're in it. But now everybody thinks they're in the same boat and everybody just comments in it. The thing is, we're not, we're not in the same boat. We're in the same storm, but we're all in different boats. That's a fundamental difference. We're in the same storm, but our perspective on the storm is determined by the boat that we're in. But the thing is, everybody is an expert and no one is at the same time. If the experts have no idea what's going on, well, then, well, yeah, then there's something off. It's a great analogy and it's the perfect perspective. I think that, that you know, I've, I've never heard that before. And I think it just sums it up perfectly that everyone, before you, before you speak out and attack somebody, even though if you don't realize you're attacking somebody, they're going to be coming at it from a different economic mm. position, a different health position, a different yeah. every family every, position, all of it, background, yeah, yeah. isolation, and everybody's mental, everybody's mental ability to deal with the anxiety of it is totally different as well. So absolutely perfect. Let's absolutely. link it. Let, I would try and link it back into wedding photography. Being a doctor means you have great empathy with people. Anyway, mm-hmm. you need to. You need to, and you need to want to help people and and to connect yeah. with people. So that's, yeah. I guess, that's always going to have helped your photography work. Anyway, the fact you've got that level of empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and do you think in any way that the experience of 2020 is going to heighten that empathy even more so that you can change your work in any way going forward? Or is it just the same? That's a tough one. If I'm thinking and looking at my work as a photographer, 
it's it's a tough one because you know photography for me the transition into going into this full time was a tough one it was a hard one i was in i was in a it was not an easy it was not an easy time for me professionally but that really forced me to think about it and break it down i had to really break down what are my fundamental and core values professionally doesn't matter what i'm doing and I had a I had a job coach uh, help me. I, I I went to a job coach. It's free in Belgium. You can have eight hours of coaching for free. They're not psychologists. They're not psychotherapists. They're not therapists. But most of them are. But I mean, and I had him help me, and we kind of boiled it down that for me, human connection and human interaction are core values for me professionally. Be it photography and be it uh, be it being a doctor. And figuring out those core values for me was the most important thing I could do to jump ship um, or to let go of that ship and dive into the wedding photography. Because I knew if I have a meaningful interaction with the couple and the, and the guests and the people around there on the day itself, that's going to be fulfilling. I love my photography. That's fine. That's not a problem. I love doing what I do. And I'm confident in what I do. But I am thinking like 2020. There are certain things, certain certain weddings that I did where I was stressed because of what had happened during the week. I'd had a stressful week, COVID and Corona and shit. And then you just like dive into like a wedding and it's like, the fuck am I doing here? And you can see it. It's very subtle. My clients, I am 100% sure my clients will not see it. But my photography, and it's for everyone, and it is, photography is a direct reflection of yourself whatever you see in a picture is mainly what you feel at that moment and i could see like the the anxiety and the stress even though they were small i mean i'm not talking that i was like having a major meltdown at a wedding but the uh, you could see my uh, mental unease because of what everything was going on i could see it in my pictures the compositions was, were, were a little bit more wonky or I was chasing moments instead of anticipating moments. Uh, I could see it. And I'm very curious going into 2021 if the wedding season is as it, as it is planned, which I genuinely hope so. I'm very curious to see where it's going to go for me, but I think for everyone else, what kind of impact this will, well, this will, have, had, this will have had on 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 me as an individual and for that reason i'm stopping again as a gp in october um and i've 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 said to myself i'm taking i'm taking two months off just to kind of regenerate a little bit i need a holiday i need to get the hell out of here although i'm not allowed to get any i'm not allowed to go anywhere i'm not even allowed to go to fucking england it's 14 days quarantine um <laughs> but i need to get out and and get get everything back straight yeah i need to do that because otherwise you, I'm burning. I'm burning my own bridges, and and that's it. You, you'd be thinking, how can you burn your own bridges? But on a mental level, you can push yourself too far. You can you can also just push yourself. You can push your boundaries too far. Also, in wedding photography, if I would say yes to every inquiry that I had, well, I, no, I don't have that luxury. But um, if I would say yes to everything, then you're you're just going to burn your own bridges. And trying to find that balance is something that is tough as it is. COVID has made it even harder it's kind of reset it. It's kind of reset the barometer. And most people don't really know where that balance is in, in, this, in this pandemic because we're all so fixated on, is it going to get back to normal? 
So just quickly, let's, just to end on something quite positive. Yeah, go. Um, sorry, I was going, so this the, is, I've been talking 10 minutes. Yeah, and you've, you've mentioned it a couple of times, really, but you've got a very, very strong community of photographers that yeah. you hang out with in Belgium. Definitely. Um, and you've, you've descended on the Nine Dots Gathering on more than one occasion and shown us just how strong that connection is between the, the, the little group of you. So, Oh, the Belgians? Oh, yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I mean, that it, to me, that's something that's so important is... is it's going to be important. It's going to be super important going forward on the on the mental side of things to have people that you can connect with and and yeah. you know moan to and and realize that they're going through the same thing that you're going through. How did it come about that you? Because you're you're all great photographers as well. So um, how did it come about that you've you've all? Because you're like a little family. That's the, that's the way that you, I see you when you travel around in your little <laughs> in the group. I mean, how did how did you get such a tight group of you? I got into it by, via the mentoring with Eve and that was by chance because I was like, hey, all of these people are really good. There must be something. So I just booked a mentoring session without really thinking with Eve, who who is a wonderful photographer, as you all know. And I'd met like Natalie Moore, who is also a, who's also a Belgian photographer, who's a great friend on top of that, and who was already helping me out. But I was like, all right, let's do this. Just go to Eve. He's the best of the best. Well, that's what they say anyway. Um, and I did that. Because I, because I wanted to be part of the community more than I wanted to learn. That's looking back at it in retrospect. But by defunct, I actually did the mentoring before all the other workshops. And that kind of already planted the seed on which you could like build with the information from the workshops. And little by little, I don't know, it just I just rolled into that community. And I think the reason why the community is, is so tight in Belgium is it's small. I mean, Belgium is the population of london not even i think especially flanders the dutch speaking part where all the more well-known photographers come from um or the internationally renowned photographers come from that's only like five six seven million people so it's very tight and if we drive more than an hour and a half in any given direction we're in a different country or in the channel um so we're all really close to each other and i think it's more the reason why we're tight is because we're just friends because it's a lonely profession really and you know you kind of have to stick with the with your friends you have to stick with people that do the same to have a good old moan but at the same time i think it, there's a mutual respect for each other you you grow and you help each other with business decisions with pricing with slideshows with pictures and the one thing is we can be absolutely brutally honest about each other's work and and nobody will take it badly because you know that you're going to learn something from the others you know you don't have to go onto an ego trip because you know the others can kick your ass on a photograph on a photographic level it's nice though i mean one thing about communities is is, is the whole ego side of it and i think if you know that you have already already respect each other yeah there's no point trying to be each other's each other's competition you are anyway so it's to, it just see just do do with it what you want, but I mean just try and make something positive out of it. And us Belgians, we roll ten deep when we go when we go partying. Um, I think sometimes when we go to the festivals, you have this uh, festival called Puckle Pop, which is a bit like the Glastonbury in Belgium. There's like twelve of us there, and good luck for someone trying to find a documentary wedding photographer for that weekend. <laughs> and we party, we hang out, and we just we just have a good time. Um, but at the same time, we're there for each other. And I think, okay, there is there is some ego stuff in there. And that's good. You need that to be able to challenge each other and to push each other. But 
the main, the biggest reason why I have got to where I am now and on this podcast is because of my friends because they've got your back and they will kick your ass if they need to and they will kick it into shape Huge thanks to Simon for chatting to me. You can find Simon's brilliant work at leclickphotography.com. That's spelled L-E-C-L-I-C-Q. And he's also leclick on Instagram. You can listen to previous episodes of the Dotcast anywhere you normally listen to podcasts. And to find out more about joining Nine Dots, head to nine-dots.com. Ka-chow.